welcome back to the Modus Morandi podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Ikaru Clark. You can connect with me at Modus Morandi on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest episodes, submit questions, or provide feedback. I'd really appreciate it if you could share with one or two friends or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The following is a conversation with Will Nolan. Will Nolan is a graduate student studying philosophy at Oxford. Will and I go way back, and I have lots of great memories with Will, ranging from studying Latin declensions together at Princeton to hiking the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Um, It's really great to catch up with Will and to discuss some of our common interests, um, including his current philosophical work. Um, He's able to, I think, really explain things in a way that makes sense to me, uh, as someone who's not really that trained in philosophy, um, and basically take these really difficult concepts that people have been studying for thousands of years uh, and explain his take on them. So I think he has a real unique gift for that. And he was also, like me, a teacher for a bit after graduating from college and before returning to, to graduate school. So we have that in common. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation talking about free will, virtue, what it means to be virtuous, uh, and the soul, which is a, a topic that has come up before on this podcast. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Will Nolan. I hope you enjoy. I'm well. How are you, Thomas? Thanks for having me on. Um, well, I'm a little sick, actually, at the moment, recovering from a bad bout of food poisoning. Um, I'm really mourning the loss of all my uh, gut flora and other intestinal bacteria that have kept me company for so long and have been decimated by E. coli or salmonella or whatever it is. But it's OK. I will I will recover. I'll drink some probiotics and um, replenish replenish the population in my gut. Yikes! Um, I'm I'm yes. sorry. To, I'm sorry to hear that. But you're feeling better now. Uh yeah yeah I'm I'm feeling much better much better. I sleep fine. No more like major symptoms. It's just that like when I eat things, it, it occasionally still upsets my stomach. I feel like my my stomach hasn't quite returned re- returned to like normal digestion yet. Uh, okay okay. But um yeah it's it's fine. I, I feel fine. Yeah. So um, Will, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us well maybe first of all just where are you right now? Right now, that's a very uh, relevant question because there has been some mobility. Currently, right now, I am in Oxford in the UK, um, where I'm doing my master's in philosophy. It's called the BPhil because they like to use funky names that no one else can understand. It's the bachelor's in philosophy would sound like an undergrad to anyone who's normal, uh, but it is indeed a two-year master's. I am in the UK currently, though I've had a little bit of back and forth to the US, where I'm originally from, because of all this uh, COVID situation that we've been learning how to navigate. Uh, The UK was on lockdown, and so I was back in Princeton, where I did my undergrad, and uh, was able to have a kind of intellectual community there, which I think is important when pursuing a degree, and I think perhaps particularly important with philosophy, where you kind of need to argue things out and talk with people. Um, To balance out my kind of intellectual interests, I try to cultivate the emotional side of myself as well. So there's several ways to do that uh, when you're analytically thinking about how to improve yourself, which is how uh, philosophers spend too much time thinking about their own lives. Uh, Reading fiction is one of these important means. Uh, Right now I'm reading Middlemarch by George Eliot. Um, 
an excellent an excellent book so far. I spent a lot of time reading Jane Austen while in England uh, because I was in England. So that was the reason I did that. And then outdoors as well, I think, are another way to cultivate something beyond the cerebral side of the self that can become out of proportion when studying just contemporary analytic philosophy. So I've done a lot of that as well, hiking and backpacking, um, leading freshmen on orientation trips uh, throughout the American wilderness. So that's a, a little backstory, and I'm sure we'll get more into the specifics of what I'm pursuing with my philosophy and the questions that I'm hoping to answer. Uh, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah, a general no, that, picture. That, yeah, that was a that was a nice intro. Thank you. But um, I noticed that um, well, there's lots of things that I know about you that I feel like we we didn't get a chance to address. So let's let's start let's start at the beginning. Um, where did you grow up? I'm I'm curious. I mean, I know, but I think it would be interesting to hear with that and hear about some of maybe your um, your anecdotes from your from your childhood and youth and how that pushed you towards pursuing philosophy first at Princeton and then now at the graduate level at, at Oxford. But um, yeah, what was your childhood like? Sure. Yeah. So to quote Michael Scott, we can start at the beginning. No, 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 no. Let's start before the beginning. So when I uh, grew up in Williamstown, Massachusetts, my, it was my dad's first job. So my family literally moved there when my mom was pregnant with me. So I'm the youngest child in a family of four children. So I'm the only true Yankee because all of my other uh, siblings were born down south in Virginia, and I'm the only one who really uh, was born and bred in New England. So we spent um, most of my childhood there. We actually, and this is a bit of a homecoming to be back in Oxford, spent two years living in Oxford and another year living in another part of England in a little godforsaken town called Loughborough, um, which both were for my dad's academic work. He's a sociologist by profession um, and still teaches at Williams to this day. So I grew up in a kind of very rural uh, Western Massachusetts town, uh, Williamstown, the namesake of, uh, or rather, yeah, the namesake, the college gave its name to the town. Um, I was homeschooled for many years. I would say that much of my upbringing was dominated by a kind of love of the outdoors and sports. So it was no uh, accident growing up in the Berkshires and right five minutes from Vermont, five minutes from New York two hours from the Adirondacks, an hour from the Green Mountains. It was no accident that I grew up loving hiking, uh, skiing, and other such outdoor activities, sometimes sailing, if I got lucky in the summer, things like that. Then I would say that really the whole kind of philosophy, intellectual um, aspirations didn't start until coming to Princeton. So that didn't really start until I took this, this great books course called the Hume Sequence, freshman year, where you're a little freshman, you're 18 years old, you probably know nothing about the world like me because you were homeschooled and then spent some time um, at a public high school uh, and even good public high schools, you still probably know nothing. But the human sequence, they just took the Iliad and the Odyssey, they started there, they threw like 36 books from the Western tradition at you and you just worked your way chronologically forward to kind of give you a foundation. And I would just say, without getting into specifics, that's where I was intellectually awakened. And uh, it's been a it's been a journey ever since. Wow. Did you so during during that humanities sequence, you know, when you read like the entire sort of Western canon of, of philosophy and, and literature, did, was there anything in particular that stood out to you that that really had an impact on you? 
This is without being too precise. I just remember reading Cicero, and I think we read maybe one of his defenses. So he would write these um, law court defenses essentially for his clients. Um, and we read one of the most famous ones. And I remember just thinking, this guy is just like us. I don't even remember specifically what it was about. I don't remember the, the kind of ins and outs of the argument. I just remember thinking the problems that the ancient world faced are the exact same problems that we face. They're, they're still human. They're still, they've got personalities. They've got grudges against people. I remember just realizing that history is not dead, but in fact, we learn so much about ourselves by reading history. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had, I've had a, actually a previous guest, Zartosh. So you know Zartosh too. He was on here a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about how when he read the classics and stuff, he, he was struck by a very similar idea of how very little has actually changed and you can relate on a personal level quite strongly to these historical figures. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's, yeah, interesting no, I think that's point, the of, point of convergence. I think that's the value of it. And I think, I think to do, read historical things well and relevantly is to be able to read them in a way that they speak to yes perhaps contemporary societal problems but also just personal questions and that that's that's how they're going to be most valuably approached very cool very cool okay and then so you're at princeton for four years doing philosophy and then did, so did you come directly to oxford no so i actually spent a year teaching high school which is oh a, like me like you that's another except, thing we have in ex common except that you did it for two years and i didn't last that long so you uh you lasted a little longer. So tell, tell me more about that. What did you teach? And um, I don't know, what did you learn about yourself through teaching? Yeah, so I taught, the subjects I taught were literature, which was certainly uh, going out on a limb for me, and then philosophy, which was more, that's ended up, that ended up being what I majored in, and so that was more comfortable. Um, but I guess two, uh, two big takeaways from, from the year. Number one, huge respect for people who give their lives to this profession. It is an incredibly important time in young people's lives. It's incredibly formative. These people need mentors. They have real pressing questions. Many of them have difficult home lives and a good teacher can do so much for students during those formative years. I was teaching high school, but I'm thinking any, anywhere from middle, middle school through high school, this is uh, invaluable labor that needs to be done. On a more personal note, I realized that it was more difficult to ask kind of abstract, high-level intellectual questions in that context. And so a lot of the work of the high school teacher is bringing things down from that level to the concrete examples. So you say, you will know about politics because you know what it's like when a soccer team coordinates or something like that. You have to come up with these kind of simple examples to explain concepts to many students who aren't intellectually inclined by nature. So that's that's what that was that second part that ultimately led me want to led me to want to go on to further study as I'm now doing, um, but I still definitely am so grateful for that exposure to have understood that first thing that I was saying, which is just the absolute crucialness of this time in people's lives and how much good can be done during those years. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. That's 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 very cool. Yeah. Um, I definitely feel like I have similar thoughts uh, as well for my two years in teaching and um, it, it is it is always this this constant um, I guess awareness that's required to translate 
certain concepts into, you know, uh, you know, whether, as you said, something more digestible and, and constantly reading the room, seeing if that metaphor worked or seeing if that, that um, analogy is being sort of soaked in by the students and readjusting if necessary, constantly changing course to, to make sure everyone's still on board. Um, yeah, Would, it's it's yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to ask. So I, I probably don't see myself going back. Would you would you consider teaching in the future again? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, for for at least for now, I'm sort of stuck on the graduate school path, and um, I'll be starting a PhD uh, next year, um, and so that'll occupy you know the next five, six, who knows how long, how many years of my life. Yeah. Um, so I mean, but years. I am very, very interested in teaching, and so um, you know, I will get some teaching experience uh, as a graduate student, like as a TA. Um, obviously being a graduate TA is not the same as being a high school teacher. So that's a bit unfortunate. You know, I'm not going to have the same level of just control and independence in my classroom as a TA, as I would, you know, being actually, you know, in a previous episode of this podcast, I talked about with, with a guest, Mike Agrippina, about how being a teacher is like being the CEO of your classroom. I mean, you really decide how everything goes and you're really making all the, the management decisions, you know, ideally. Um, and that just, you know, that isn't the case if you're, if you're a grad TA and, and you don't have the same level of buy-in from the students. This is just sort of one class that they're taking. Um, right. actually it's quite sad when you see, you know, college courses where you have all the students come in, they just pop open their laptop. They're just checking emails every five minutes, not really paying attention. Like the TA probably doesn't know most of their names. They probably don't know the TA's name. They just come once a week to like potentially get, uh, you know, help for a P set or something. Um, you know, maybe I'm just being cynical here, but I, I think in grad school, there's a lot of, um, frankly, lousy teaching that's, that's going on. Um, yeah, I don't think it yeah. has to be that way. So one thing I'm optimistic about is, is hopefully being able to have a, a you know, control the experience to the degree that I can. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's you know. what I was going to say is like, maybe TAing won't be exactly like high school teaching, but if you do continue on the, the graduate and academic track and by the time you're, you're a professor, I bet you would have some of that more of that agency in determining how you want the classroom to run. Like I know my father, for example, he just like doesn't allow technology in the class. So that's a quick fix for the, for one kind of distraction that college students are fall prey to in large droves. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's definitely a good point. And I mean, I've definitely had really good classes at, at Princeton. Too. Like, you know, there were professors who put in a lot of effort and had great examples and very engaging dynamic speaking styles and, you know, would pause to do like a chat with your neighbor and like, you know, discuss this for, for a minute. And then like, he would, you know, just like pull the classroom or we'd have like those clickers where you can vote on questions. And I think there's a lot of things you can do to, to make the, even a college lecture much more, much more engaging. And of course, when you're in like a small seminar with like 10 people, it can be quite, quite engaging to, to, just be there and interacting face to face. Obviously, this is all pre pre COVID. I think on a Zoom call, it's it's much easier to just sort of tune out and have other tabs open, and it's it's a little sad. Um, but yeah, yeah, we've got some other things yeah. to fix first. Yeah, um, cool. But okay, so so now you're you're studying you're studying philosophy at Oxford. Um, what what kinds of philosophical questions? do you spend your time thinking about? Like what, what's something that you've maybe covered this year or written an essay on um, some philosophical idea or problem or philosopher that um, struck you as, as interesting? There's a difficulty in talking about one's studies in, in general settings. And I, that's not to say that 
it's not a good thing to do. In fact, I think it's something that we should practice more often because too often in academia, you get caught up in your little niche and then you can talk to like 10 people in the world, but most people have no idea what the heck you're talking about. So this, this is good yeah. practice. But I think that's, there is a difficulty there. So I've, I've, I have the terms that I'll use. So if someone asks that question, I'll say something like, yeah, I do um, philosophy of mind. I do action theory. And I do most of this in the context of ancient philosophy. I think generally speaking, that's all of that's true. Um, but I think that uh, to leave it at that is to buy into this idea that like those subcategories are the only things that I care about, that I'm interested about. In reality, I like to read broadly. In reality, I like to answer all sorts of questions. Um, so within philosophy of mind, just because we're going we're gonna to go down this road and I'm going to I'm gonna try to explain this in layman's terms, I think the thing that, uh, that really motivates me is ultimately ethical questions. So how ought we to live? But then I think to actually answer that question well, you need to say, okay, what is the human? What kind of thing are we? And so that has led me to a bunch of what philosophers call metaphysical questions, questions about the nature of reality, the nature of the person, um, and in, in particular, things like the mind-body problems. You may have heard of this. This is a sort of modern problem, probably dating from Descartes, where if we have all this conscious phenomena, we think abstractly, we have things like language, but at the same time, all of our knowledge seems to come through our senses, through our body. How the heck do these two interact with each other? That's, that's mm -hmm. in a nutshell, yeah. the mind-body problem. So I'd say questions d along the lines of the mind-body problem are the, are the sort of things that I pursue, but as I said, mostly in the context of reading ancient Greek philosophers. Okay. So which particular Greek philosophers um, have thought about this? Because, I mean, this sounds like quite a modern thing to think about. Like, for example, even in modern cognitive science, you know, departments at universities, they're talking about things like this and how the brain interacts with you know, what is consciousness, what is awareness, all this stuff. And it's, it's interesting to me that there are ancient Greek philosophers who are already discussing these ideas. So like, who are, who are some thinkers that I should, uh, I should be aware of? Yeah, well, maybe, I mean, just a quick caveat, maybe I oversimplified in saying that they really speak about these things. Of course, there's this whole, like, translation that has to happen beyond just like the, the literal translation. I mean, like, it's not as if Aristotle who I've done most of my reading with. Aristotle writes De Anima on the soul um, in a little book, and he's not dealing with, he's not dealing with the contemporary mind-body problem per se, but he does care about how do humans know, how, do, how does abstract thought emerge from my perception of that flower pot, a very particular object? How do I then come to this idea of like universals? How do I then have the concept of flower pot as a kind of abstracted, um, entity. So he's dealing with, I think, very similar questions about the nature of human experience and existence. But no, yeah, he doesn't, I don't think the Greeks have the language for what we call contemporarily the mind-body problem per se. I see. But but there's like, there's philosophical work that they did that is relevant for this, that, for this problem, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all, so, all okay. men, yeah, all, all men like desire a, to know. Yeah. So um, interesting. Yeah, because I, I feel like I, I've thought of, I mean, most people have probably thought about something like this at some point, right? It's like sort of like the classic, oh, like, is my red the same as your red sort of thing? I mean, that, that maybe ties into this, right? Because, you know, we're both maybe seeing the same apple. Um, but how do I how do I have any assurance that my experience of the color red when I see that apple is the same as yours when you see it? If it's just this subjective 
internal thing, you know, my experience of red. Obviously, it has a certain color, it reflects light at a certain wavelength, blah, blah, blah. That's uh, just an objective thing and can be measured scientifically. But um, how can you compare the subjective experiences of two people? I don't know if that's something that you've thought about, but... Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's certainly something I've been exposed to. You have Frank Jackson's kind of really famous uh, thought experiment about this girl, Mary. So this is kind of like philosophy of mind 101. She's locked in a room. All she's ever known in her whole life is black and white, but she's a genius. And she's studied a bunch of optics and science of colors and everything. And so she understands the concept of what colors are. Then one day someone opens up the door sunlight comes streaming in she steps out into the world and she sees a red apple or any red object and the question is hasn't she learned something new hasn't something happened that she didn't have before um so this is a slightly different question than than the question of like my experience versus your experience but it is this question of there seems to be something different from when we talk about color as the example that we're using i guess outside of us versus the experience inside of us. So like, presumably, when there's an, a single apple that you and I are both looking at, the light waves that are coming off it are exactly the same wavelength. We can agree on that from a kind of like scientific objective perspective, although I think there's problems with that word. But then, yeah, what happens in the phenomenal experience? Even if we're like seeing the same shade our experience of it could be quite different because we have different emotional associations with it. We have different histories with apples and with red colors. Maybe you're thinking of like the Garden of Eden and I'm thinking of like um, Snow White or something. I don't know. It just could be, it, it could be very different. Mm -hmm. it, even if it's not just like, even if we see the same shade, our phenomenal experience could be very distinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a fascinating concept. I, I definitely have come across this Mary trapped in a room um, thought experiment before and my first thought was wow poor mary that's definitely abusive uh, someone someone should rescue mary from this room um, no, I know. no it is really it's an interesting thought experiment um and yeah so okay so that's one major i guess question in uh, in philosophy of mind um would philosophy of mind also deal with questions like free will like can you as a as someone who has a mind um you know, actually control things in the world? Like, can you actually have an influence on things? Or is the world just this deterministic set of processes that all started from an initial set of conditions following the laws of physics, you know, and you're maybe, you're like, this would be like one one view, right? The deterministic view that that you don't actually have any free will. You just are, your self-awareness self and consciousness is just sort of this illusion that is produced as a phenomenon, uh, you know, of these causes, but you can't yourself cause things to actually change. Yeah. Um, is that, is that something that you're also uh, interested in? Yeah, no, very much so. I mean, there's, there's, so free will is a huge problem and a huge discussion. And there's so many different ways that you can look at it from, I have done a fair bit of, of work with free will in the ancient philosophy context. Um, so it's been, it's been a problem for time immemorial. People debate about when the kind of free will problem was articulated. So this, this uh, uh, sort of problem that you've begun outlining of, well, if the universe is determined, it seems like human action isn't free. And that's interesting in its own right. But a reason why philosophers tend to care about this quite a bit, and anyone really, if you think about it for about 
few seconds, because I actually firmly believe that everyone asks philosophical questions. Uh, we have to in our lives, even if we don't pursue them with the same uh, intensity as people who uh, professionally study it. I think everyone asks these questions. If you don't have free will, this is the problem. There's no such thing as blame, morality, moral exhortation, counsel, all these things. There's this great quote from, from Aquinas. He's not really, he's not really um, new in this because a lot of people in the ancient world and medieval world say this, but he's basically like, if there is no free will, then punishment and reward are both rendered useless because those assume that someone has kind of agency over their actions, that they have freedom over their actions. Um, though those are importantly distinct, but they have, they, if, if we don't have free will, then, then kind of morality is, uh, has the rug pulled out from under it. So I think that's the motivation, a huge philosophical motivation for this problem. But yes, it's, it's a huge problem. Um, and you can look at it from a bunch of different perspectives. One quick thing I would add about the determinism that you said, determinism can come from multiple sources. So today I think we tend to think like, oh, atomic determinism. Somehow, if we just look at brain states and compare atomic or subatomic or molecular level interactions, then we can just know the decision that the human will make. We can know the action that will kind of be spit out, just like a function machine or something, if all we mm -hmm. are is, is wet yeah. robots. That's one kind of determinism. But people, Christians even, have dealt with this problem for centuries because there's another kind of determinism that's just as scary, which is maybe it's not physical determinism, but maybe God just determines me. Maybe I have no freedom over my action because God is just the source of all, of all action in the world. And so from the very beginning, um, one of the first real articulations of free will is Augustine in uh, On Free Will, De Libero Arbitrio. And he, that's his concern there, is that God's omnipotence or power or providence just determines everything. And so he's trying to defend human free will against that. So, yeah, I, I'll stop there for now. But just, just I think it's an important thing to flag, like free will versus determinism can take many different forms. And yeah, 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 yeah. The physics that, form yeah, is one of them. That's fascinating because yeah, there are many, many different ways to break down the problem, right? Like when you said, oh... Um, if you don't have free will, then, you know, sort of what, what, what's the point of like, what does morality even mean since you have no, no control, but then it makes me wonder, it's like, well, if there is no free will, then even talking about it doesn't really, we can't help but talk about it. But if we are talking about it, that means that we're predetermined to do so. So what's the point saying that we shouldn't talk about it, but then saying that is already predetermined. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, <laughs> no, there's this great, there's this great little story. I think it's Zeno of Citium, the founder of the Stoics. And he's, he tells the story of a slave and a master. And the slave says, listen, I, I didn't mean to do the thing that I did. I didn't mean to steal from you or whatever crime he'd done. I was just determined to do it. And the master said, and I was determined and I was determined to beat you. So like both of them yeah. didn't have freedom. And so it's just, yeah, the, it, the whole thing collapses right. very quickly. Right, right. Like, yeah, you, like, you could imagine that like, I don't know, perhaps like, well, I don't know what you think about like animals, right? But even if animals don't have free will and they're just following certain biological, you know, imperatives, like you can still train them by punishing them and rewarding them, right? So like, even if they're just completely robotic, um, it still might make sense to have punishments and rewards because it will train them to do what's what you want so you know 
a society may still want to have rules and have punishments and all that to train its robotic, non-free will having citizens to, to act in a good way. Um, who, you know, of course, bracketing, right. Yeah. Free, bracketing the question really of like, who's the free decisions? to, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And like, then the other you, point, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say in that example, the trainer themselves isn't free. I would assume like the government or whatever, is just composed of determined agents. And so there's, it's just, it's a regress. Yeah. Turtles all the way down. Uh, I guess, I mean, I'd like to personally believe in free will because, well, I'm just attached to the idea that, that I'm free. Although sometimes it does feel like you're not free. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it feels like, do you ever feel like you're, when you're about to do something, you kind of already know before you do it, that you're going to do it. Yeah. Do you ever have that feeling? It's like, yeah, it's like you sit there thinking about it and you're just like, but I know I'm going to do this. Like, or it's like, there's a chocolate bar sitting on my desk and it's like, I mean, I do have the freedom to wait. I mean, I I could, but it's like, I know I'm not going to, I know I'm just going to eat it. (laughs) Yeah. And then you eat it. I mean, obviously you are, you you can try to resist it more and more, but um, yeah. What you mentioned about habits, I think is is a good point too. Because one of my sort of, beliefs or something that I've been thinking about recently is the idea that we focus a lot when we talk about morality um, we focus a lot on actions and saying like this action is bad this action is good um, and not too much at the level of you know habits and obviously this is something that has been talked about before by people like Alistair McIntyre in virtue ethics and, and mm-hmm. things like that but mm-hmm. I mean sort of the idea that you know Actions actually aren't as important as habits, right? If you think of like exercise, like doing push-ups, doing a hundred push-ups on one day isn't going to matter, you know, in five years, but doing 50 push-ups every day for the next five years would make a huge difference, you know? So, um, things like that where, you know, even for your body, like a habit matters more. Right. And then in terms of like what we do, I feel like there's a lot of people who sort of get away with not great behavior because looking at individual actions, they say, well, none of these individual actions is technically bad, right? Like, you know, it's not, you know, it's not wrong for me to, you know, maybe like, this is kind of like going to Princeton. I feel like we see this a lot with people going to like finance for a year. They'll say like, you know, oh, you know, I know the finance industry isn't great, but But I'm just just going to do it for two years or something. Yeah. I'm just going to do it for two years. Like, it's not like intrinsically wrong. Like maybe like it wouldn't be good to like, you know, maybe it's like, that's not the way that everyone should be spending their time. But, you know, there's sort of like a, it's like, it's not wrong. Like, I would agree, okay? It's, you're not a bad person if you spend a year working in finance. But the, the sort of the calculus is about the action of, of how to spend this one year and not about yep. like a totally different conversation you could be having, which is what is the best way to use my skills? Or, you know, what sort of habits do I want to build to be the best person possible or to help the world in the best way, et cetera. I mean, there's just totally different ways of looking at morality and, and what your obligations are rather than saying like is this permissible or not yeah no totally i mean it makes me think of like aristotelian habituation so when that chocolate bar is on the desk and you really desire it if the previous 10 times you've been in that case and you've eaten it you're most likely going to do it again because that's the kind of character state that you've put yourself in and i think the same thing happens with these decisions you can be like well the first time of like oh i'll just go to finance I just graduated. I'll just make a little money. It will make my family life more comfortable when that begins a few years down the road. But then you're there and you're like, 
you start having a more expensive lifestyle because you're in New York City and people get drinks three days a week and then you have to have a nice apartment in Midtown and it just sort of like snowballs. And so even if like one decision of like this done on the calculus of like this isn't a bad thing to do is like kind of true in its own right, if you continue to make decisions down that line, it like it can lead in a, in a given direction unless you intentionally like that 11th time the chocolate bar there is you make like an incredibly strong effort to push this aside. This is where Christians need to start talking about grace because uh, humans don't really have the willpower to, to sometimes actually overcome these things and they're on their own, especially you can think of cases like addiction. Like it's incredibly difficult to change course once you've gone down certain moral paths, particularly um, Aristotle and, and others would say vicious paths. So vices are really hard to eliminate once you uh, have them ingrained very deeply. Yeah, yeah. No, addiction in particular is like a very scary thought because like, you know, I've seen various movies and TV shows with like characters who are, you know, addicted to drugs or something. You know, I'm thinking in particular of um, there's a movie called Beautiful Boy with uh, Timothy Chalamet and Michael Scott from The Office. Uh, okay. What's his name? Um, Steve Carell. I forget. Steve Carell, yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's a good movie. Um, but I'll write it down. It's, it, it's just like, wow, you really like you, your, your agency, your free will is just taken away. I mean, you in the presence, of, like, I, I feel like it's something that if you're not, if you haven't been addicted to drugs, you just cannot understand like the, the desire to, you know, just say anything, do anything to get, you know, your next high, um, at least in the way that is portrayed in the media that I've seen. Um, and, you know, that can lead to a lot of other problems like homelessness or, you know, infection with diseases and um, trouble with, you know, personal life and family and all that. Um, but, you know, so much, like, we think of ourselves as agents with freedom and, you know, you can choose good or bad. But, like, I wonder what, what happens when you start to doubt that about yourself, when you start to, like, feel hopeless in the idea that you can even choose to change the way your life is going. Um, yeah. Perhaps, like, I mean, obviously drug addiction is not the only kind of addiction. There's many other kinds of addiction. But even short of addiction, there may be people who just feel like a great despair about yeah. the, the idea that they can't do anything to change their life, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I think this is something that the philosophical discussions can sometimes just gloss over because it's it's dealt with in, a, in the in the analytic mode, which is do you take the red pill or do you take the blue pill? And then you're just like this rational agent. But the reality is, is that we are rational and emotional agents. And that gets makes things very complicated very quickly. And so uh, there isn't that kind of ideal freedom that we hopefully have, at least in some instances in our life when we're uh, sober-minded and awake to all the relevant reasons, we hopefully can have that kind of freedom. But I think, yeah, very often we are, we're shaped by, we're shaped by emotional responses or addictions or things like that in a way that, that tends to undermine freedom. Now, I don't think this should lead us to a kind of stoic, uh, attempt to eradicate the emotions and despair and remove them. I'm much more sympathetic to the, the Aristotelian picture taken up by Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, that emotions are not bad, they just have to be properly ordered. So we need to feel delight in the right things and feel repulsion about the wrong things. So we have to kind of align them because they don't, they don't necessarily do that, but through habituation we can make it so that we really like one chocolate bar, but we really don't like having the second or third. We like 
we, we, we uh, learn temperance. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I think the existential weight of those questions can be lost in the, in the philosophical discussions. Um, and I think that's where, I do think that's where a discussion much more about um, grace and accountability and love of others and community and things like that are going to come into play. Things that would take us out of ourselves that offer the path mm -hmm. forward for the drug addict, a way to, to get back on their feet and, and be human agents again. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I totally agree with what you said. And I think, I mean, it's applicable to everyone, you know, you don't have to be addicted to anything, uh, you know, or be a drug addict or, you know, whatever. like, everyone has some struggles with, you know, ways in which they want to improve, um, uh, ways in which they should improve. And, you know, as you said, having having some structure around you to, to make that decision easier. You know, because we're not just these brains and vats that like can no, say, okay, no. willpower. I'm gonna like just white knuckle my way out of you know doing this bad thing. Like you know, it's 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 actually incredibly liberating to feel to 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 find it easy to make the right decision, right? To to not reinforce the bad thing, but reinforce the good choice, and then the choice gets easier and easier and easier. You know, so yeah. it's like yeah, as you said, like choosing not to have the third candy bar you know again and again and then over time like it actually becomes distasteful to you to do that thing that once perhaps you were tempted to do yeah and that's very freeing to, to realize that like I, I don't even want to do the bad thing yeah and that's in in some sense much when you get to that point it's, it's much more rewarding than saying like oh i really really wanted to do it but i uh i just barely hung on by a thread to, to yeah. not do it I mean, that's, yeah. that's heroic in some ways, like good for you for trying, like maybe that's what you need at the beginning. But, um, in other ways it's like, you know, like that's, that's tough Like you're putting yourself through a lot psychologically. If you know, you have to make that sort of decision constantly. Yeah. Right? You might be able to do that for, for one thing, but not for another. Maybe you can do that for drugs, but not for food. Or maybe you can do that for, you know, I mean, whatever, whatever your, you know, uh, the thing is, um, it yeah, it, it, on that point, Aristotle makes this distinction between continence and virtue. So virtue is when you both know the right number of cookies. Let's say there's a plate of 10 and the right number is one, just for shorthand. You both know that and you desire that emotionally. And both emotion and reason are in line and that um, gives fruit to the action of eating just one cookie. The continent person externally looks exactly the same. He only eats one cookie. His reason knew that and he did that, but his emotions the whole time are rebelling and saying, I want more, I want more, I want more. And so there's a really big distinction between that kind of like one-off heroic act versus the virtuous person who like really with their whole being uh, wants to do just that. And I think this is true for positive things as well. Thomas, I know you've done a fair bit of running as have I. And when you start running, a lot of people will say on their first run, like that's awful. How do you like running? That's just so painful. If it really stayed that painful, no one would jog daily like some people do. Like no one would ever get to enjoy running if it really stayed as painful as it is on your first run. Your legs feel yeah. heavy, your breathing's hard. The fact is after you've run for a month or two, it gets really easy. It gets to like just yeah. be a joy. And so I think that's what people, that's, that's the good thing about habituation is it works both in both directions. You can habituate yourself into good things as well as out of bad things. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And and so, I mean, that's kind of why I think some people are like, they get so upset when they like maybe mess up one time, right? Like, let's say that like your your goal is to run every day and they like don't make, they're, they're like lazy one day and they forget to run. It's like, that's actually not the, not a huge deal. Like, you know, everyone has like a bad day where you, you slip up. Right. It's like the, the more important thing is to like not let that 
cause you to become so pessimistic that you then just like stop running for the next month. It's like if you just say, okay, I had a lazy day, but I'm going to get right back to it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Then that's actually fine. That's completely fine. A year later, you're not even going to know the difference. Yep. Um, you know, if you're on a diet and you have like one day where you just eat a whole tub of ice cream, like don't beat yourself up and be like, oh my gosh, I'm the worst person. I like, I, I can't ever stick to this diet. It's like, okay, that's not great. But like, just don't just, you know, okay, like move on from that. Um, I, I think people are often very hard on themselves because they're looking at it from a very action-oriented point of view and not a virtue-oriented point of view, in which case it's like, you know, maybe look at like the frequency in between those indulgences, right? It's like maybe yeah. before you were eating a tub of ice cream, you know, three times a week. And now yeah. you're doing it like every two weeks. That's actually a huge improvement. And then maybe let's work on getting it to like once a month and, you know, yeah. gradually step step towards improvement. And, you know. I, I think this is so, this is this is so often why people fail with like New Year's resolutions and stuff is because they view it as this like absolute or nothing. And so, or, or Lenten uh, resolutions as well. Like the people who a week into Lent, a week after Ash Wednesday are like already eating ice cream again and uh, whatever, spending time reading news that they said they weren't going to, all the, yeah. all the things that people do. Um, and it's be, I think it's because you you view it as, as all or nothing versus like, you know what? 75% is way better than 0% and it's a lot closer to 100% than 0%. But the moment that we like don't hit 100%, we just give up on the whole project. And yeah, this, I mean, this is just uh, something you can observe probably in lots of areas of human life. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a question I want to ask you about uh, on the topic of free will. So I'm currently reading this book about AI and the, the future of life in a, in a world with super intelligence. Uh, the book is called Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, uh, who's a physicist okay. at, at MIT. Um, but um, yeah, there's lots of books about this, right, about sort of the singularity and building superhuman AI, and then it's going to take off and become super smart and all that. Personally, I'm a little skeptical of some of these claims. I mean, it may happen. Who knows? I just don't think we're on like the brink of any sort of like AI domination sort of thing. Again, I could be proved wrong, but I, I just don't think that's that's coming anytime soon. Um, however, I wonder like in principle, should we even, should we even acknowledge the possibility that, um, there could be a super intelligence in Silicon? Obviously there are computers that can do way more calculations than a human can and really do amazing things. Um, and there are even computers now that can do pretty human like tasks, you know, uh, they're getting decently good at machine translation at you know image recognition at you know lots of different kinds of things um however like do, do you even think it's possible that a machine could be self-aware in the same way that we are and okay so if not then well yeah first of all why don't i let you answer the question do you think it's possible so i think there needs to be a distinction between self-awareness and free will first of all so okay is there would you prefer to deal with one or the other yeah, actually, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I always think of them as going together, but you're right, they're not necessarily, this doesn't have to be the case. Um, so yeah, why don't we just look at both? So I mean, do you think it could be self-aware and do you think it could have free will? Okay, so I think there's times in the past when I've been more optimistic about this, but I, I've been, like, I thought that might be possible, which I guess really actually isn't all that optimistic about where things would go, but I'd, I'm pretty doubtful of it at this point. Caveat, I have no knowledge about AI except like what pop articles will tell you. So why 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 do I think I can say this? I think a couple Wait, which reasons. one are we talking about right now? Self awareness? Um sure. Yeah, we can start with self well we can 
let's start with free will. Let's start with free will. Okay, sorry, free will. That's okay. Cool. Yeah. First is like a simple question of trust and authority. There are people who do this kind of stuff who seem to me to be ever more convicted. These are secular and religious people, both sides uh, uh, there, who just say, yeah, it's it, it can't happen in principle. Like the neural networks are pretty cool and they're pretty complicated. It will not yield uh, agential action. It will not yield um, freedom. It's always kind of what we put into it or what we tell it to pay attention to. But it's ultimately, we're building the structure and that puts the limits on the kind of thing that it can be. No matter how fast the processing powder power, no matter how much data it can store, these are still the guardrails. And it's still at base a deterministic system. The other thing that I've philosophically just begun to realize, and it was actually in reading Epicurus, an ancient philosopher, that I realized this. He has this whole theory of freedom that seems to be predicated on random atomic motion. People freaked out in the 20th century. They're like, oh, he foresaw quantum mechanics or something because he has this idea of like the swerve where an atom just kind of jolts to the side and people were people were making a big deal out of it. It's clear that he did think this and he did teach this. But the problem with the theory at root is that an indeterministic swerve is very different than free action. Like if right. our if our brains freedom was determined by an indeterministic atomic swerve, that's still not us doing it. That's just an atom bouncing in a way that doesn't follow the normal laws of physics. So because freedom is not guaranteed by determinism or indeterminism, that philosophically makes me very skeptical that at least anything uh, structured in the way that our computational machines are structured now could ever become agential. Because even if there's even we have like a really sophisticated quantum computer, that's still not free. It's just indeterministic according to normal laws of physics. On the other hand, if it's if it's macroscopic and composed of parts like my MacBook Pro, it's still just deterministic and of course there's no agency there. So in terms of freedom, yeah. I'm I'm pretty pessimistic. But maybe that's, yeah, that's I think an important distinction to make to talk about the difference between free will, like having actual freedom and then just being impossible to predict, right? Like just because something is random and impossible to predict that may simulate freedom, that may look free because there's no way to track the determinacy. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it is indeterminate. I mean, it, it could still be deterministic. And yeah, so I think that's that's a good point. However, I do wonder, like, why aren't these arguments also applicable to human beings? Like, we're also made of matter. Sure, we're not made of silicon, but we have types of neural circuitry in our brains. You know, we have atoms moving around. Like, what, why do these arguments not also lead to the conclusion that human beings don't have free will? I, this, is, this is the question, but I, I mean, it's the big question, so it probably can't um, answer it totally. But I think the big concept to keep in mind is that many theories of the person, and particularly ones that I find quite compelling, say that there is more to the person than what you're going to see with the MRI scan in the brain. That is part of the person, part of the human being, but in order to have something like the principle of life, as Aristotle will say, suke is the Greek word from where we get psychology, there's probably has to be an immaterial element. I can give you an argument for Aristotle, one of Aristotle's argument if you want yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Please. for this position. The idea that he, the, the idea for him, he argues from 
universals. So let me just back up a tiny bit. The argument is for the soul, essentially. Now, the danger with when you hear that word and the danger, the reason why I like to use phrases like mind-body problem and things like that and not just say soul, soul straight up is because soul has all these connotations for being an irrational, uh, religious concept uh, carried on through traditions through the ages, but not something that we can ever uh, actually truly believe in. And I sort of actually being a religious person myself for a while I thought there was an incompatibility here between like my religious beliefs and what I understood uh, science to tell me about the world, what I understood philosophy to tell me about the world. But what I've come to believe is that actually not only is the religious concept a lot less mystical than a lot of people make it out to be, but that the scientific philosophical, well, I'll just say philosophical concept of the soul is actually um, itself an essential explanatory part of nature. So here's the, here's the argument quickly. Human minds are capable of knowing universals. This is different than knowing a particular. So let's take the example of a triangle. There's the particular triangle that the teacher draws on the whiteboard. This is an individual instance, and as Aristotle's terminology puts it, a particular. But humans are also capable of knowing the universal concept of triangle. So maybe my teacher's drawn it on the board three times. Maybe I've seen a cookie cutter shape of this. And maybe around, around the time I'm like five years old, I finally get it. I can close my eyes. I cannot have anyone talking to me. And I can, in my mind, call to mind the definition of a three-sided planar figure with angles equal to 180 degrees. I can not only imagine the image of this, I can articulate this general concept, which then in the future, again, allows me to recognize particular triangles. So the next time the teacher draws that on the board, I can point to that and say, that is a triangle. So Aristotle's question is basically, well, how do we know that, how do we know this, this kind of universal concept? How is that possible? Well, he says for any particular, it comes through the senses. So any particular knowledge, the triangle drawn on the board, the sound of something, of, of someone yelling at me, um, the feel of, of a rough surface. All of these are particular pieces of knowledge that come through my senses. A universal is something that I don't have to have any sensory experience going on for me to understand it. Therefore, it is not dependent upon an organ. Therefore, the faculty which allows me to have a universal must itself be immaterial. That's the argument long and short of it. He's, he therefore says there must be a part, an immaterial part of the human that is uh, what he calls the intellect, or when we're speaking in shorthand, we call this the soul. So he bases it on different kinds of knowledge that humans can have. And if humans are capable of abstract knowledge, he says, therefore, we must have this immaterial faculty called the intellect. That's the argument in short. Okay, so, so I see. So there, there has to be something immaterial, which we can call it whatever, you know, we can call it different things, but something beyond, you're, you're more than just the sum of, of your bodily parts, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and this is this kind of abstract knowledge, something like the word and, like any part of language, any part of these uh, abstract concepts, mathematical concepts, whatever, they don't seem to be anywhere in the world. It's not as if like all the particular triangles were destroyed, that like triangles would cease to exist. We'd still have the concept of triangle. So that's the, the basic idea is that there must be this part of the mind, this part of the human where they can exist, but it just turns out that uh, it's, not, it's not material. But what if we just say that like they're just memories stored in your brain, so they are stored in an organ. 
your brain and they're just like in the form of memories or, or knowledge well there's a couple problems with that first particulars have to be instantiated in one particular place and time and so it would seem weird to say that thomas clark has a triangle in his brain let's say that i'm sorry thomas you're annihilated and cease to exist <laughs> I, I still have the concept of triangle how is that possible how is it so communicable um because the particular namely if it was stored in your brain is gone and yet i still have the concept so how did that happen well can't there be copies of it okay so yeah this is getting a little bit more in the weeds but i'm happy to say that every <laughs> every time you or i think of a triangle we do think of an image accompanying it and that image is probably like functions in our brain right it's probably like chemical processes but the question is is that the universal because whatever okay so the universal is just the one you think that's like actually beyond any any single instantiation so even if you're not calling it to mind or you're there's no experience of it at all so i'm not like thinking of a triangle you're saying it's still like it's still there and it's it's, it's and it's not just in one person it's shared by people yeah exactly so like we have the same concept in our in in our intellects and and we it's have a, it's a fascinating there. idea i'm not i mean i need to think about this but um definitely uh yeah it's definitely worth thinking about um hmm. yeah sorry sorry to take us a little far afield i no no i, like, I forget I like exactly how like, we, I, I forget I like exactly how we got here and, and, yeah, yeah yeah no no it's good um oh we we're talking about ai and you know oh if, that's uh, right we have we have souls or not and um yeah whether what's different between um like why can't the argument that machines can never have freedom why would that argument not apply to humans and so the argument would be i take it that we have something immaterial that machines don't have right right yeah exactly and that That's this is also responsible for for our freedom presumably this something immaterial within us like you could never find it with a microscope or a scanner or some kind like there's just something in us that you would never be able to find scientifically, empirically, that is responsible for our freedom. Yeah, exactly. So I think you'd have to do you'd have to get some more do some more wading around in the weeds to figure out exactly how that works. But that would be the basic idea of like you can see every part of an AI under a microscope. You can see every part of the human brain under a microscope. But there's a part of the human that you can't see under the microscope, and that's what would account for freedom. So. If you if all you're doing is is looking at the data of, of brain science or neuroscience, you've you've limited the scope too narrowly, and you'll never find freedom, because freedom is not in that part of the human being. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so we talked a bit about freedom, and then there's also like the question of just subjective experience or self awareness, right? Yeah, Where yeah. I think that, yeah, that is different because, for example, I'm pretty sure my dog has subjective experience. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not self aware to the same degree that a human is, right? But you know, well, it, it can feel things. It can feel pain. It can feel, it can miss me. It can feel excited to be reunited with family. Um, you know, it, it's looking at the world through its eyes and um, he's has, you know, desires and feelings and, and all that. Um, and, you know, I think actually many animals have some kind of subjective experience. I, I don't think our current technology has that at all. And I think it would need it would require a fundamental shift in the way we build machines to actually give a machine subjective experience. 
The weird thing, though, is that, like, if you built a robotic dog that that just was programmed to behave exactly like a dog, we would probably start... We would, we would not be able to help but think that it had subjective experience, right? Like, you would feel bad torturing a robotic dog that looked like a dog and screamed like a dog and barked like a dog and gave you puppy eyes like a dog. You know, I mean, like, right. it would... It would, it would seem hard to separate those two things but it's just like yeah like knowing how computers work i'm just i'm quite convinced that my, in my computer when i run a program it doesn't have a you know sense of boredom waiting for the program to finish it doesn't have a sense of annoyance at the stupidity of the way i've programmed it you know it, it doesn't it doesn't have any subjective experience um whereas i do feel that way about animals but maybe that's just my human bias or the fact that you know we've lived with animals and I don't know. It could just be completely unfounded. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a difficult question. You have people, if Descartes followers, this guy Malabranch, I think he was actually a Jesuit, but he was like, oh yeah, animals are entirely just like wet robots. And he, he like, even in lectures, he like kicked cats just to like prove this to people. He was just like, wow. Oh my he was like, I believe what I preach. Um, but yeah, no, I'm very uncomfortable with that kind of idea. So I think, I think that there is something categorically different in kind between that which we can make and something that's living in the natural world. What exactly that is really hard to put your finger on, especially since um, animals don't have the higher level reasoning capacities that we do. So what's special about them? Not entirely sure, but I, I agree with your discomfort there. I'm very sympathetic to that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it requires some kind of, you know, um, supernatural faith or, or basically do you have to depart from you know the empirical process to accept the existence of an immaterial soul or or immaterial parts of, of the human person no i don't that i mean that opens up a, a huge field of questions about like okay i i am a believer uh, i i'm a christian thomas you know that um so how what's the relationship between like philosophical study and and faith and i think the short the short thing that i would just say is in response to that particular question there are good arguments for the existence of the soul in totally naturalistic philosophical terms i really believe that but at the same time i'm probably more open to being convinced by those arguments because of my pre-existent religious commitments that's certainly true as well so I would say it's kind of both and like as a Christian, yes, I believe that the soul is is real, but also as a philosopher, I have very compelling arguments for that. And I think that there is total coherence in the non-religious person believing in the soul without having uh, cracked open the Bible. I see. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I mean, it's certainly it, it's certainly hard to be religious without believing in the soul. <laughs> Let's put it that way. If you go to go the other way, it would be. Oh, sure, be sure. Yeah, I'm I, as as a Catholic, I guess that's more specifically what the relevant piece would be. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. What but yeah I mean, like come up. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, like, like Buddhists, if you're a Buddhist, you sort of like, well, maybe the soul exists, but more importantly, none of reality really exists. So <laughs> it like begins to it begins to break down as you get subsumed into the kind of single consciousness that is all of reality yeah. maybe that's maybe that's yeah. more hinduism but that's that's a kind of eastern approach yeah it's interesting to see different ways that the soul is interpreted in different 
like even across religions, right? I mean, like just just because I mean, it's not like religion is a is a monolith when it comes to how it treats the souls. I mean, whether like for example, reincarnation versus um, afterlife is like I think a huge divergence, right? Like, is your soul? Yeah. I mean, you might believe in the soul, but think it. You know, either you are recycled or you just sort of um, you sort of rejoin just this sort of um, larger like almost like a, a liquid from which you came and then a new soul is generated, but like you as you no longer exist um, or, you know, you're, you're reincarnated. So that's sort of like, that's, that's a pretty common worldview for a lot of people. But then there's sort of the idea of like the afterlife, which, okay, like Christianity has that, but actually a lot of religions do not have the afterlife. Mm-hmm. You know, some ancient ones did like the Greeks, you know, they had Hades and, you know, the Egyptians famously Tartarus. believed in the afterlife and all that. Um, but then again, you know, uh, who is the uh, Roman author who thought that like when you're uh, when you die, you just all your pieces are just separated and um, well, there's Epic- this transmigration of Lucretius and Epicurus. Oh, Lu- Lucretius kind of thought that. OK, I, yeah, I can't remember. There's like, yeah, this idea of like returning to your constituent parts i actually don't i don't want to say anymore because i'm going to butcher what, what whatever they actually believe. i mean but both epicurus uh, and lucretius were atomists so they basically just thought yeah every feature of the person is explained by these indivisible particles unlike our contemporary atoms and that you just got broken up into pieces the relevant pieces when you died so that 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 would be a view that's like that okay yeah yeah, yeah. um hmm so then, like, yeah, this is a, one question that I asked uh, an earlier guest on, who you also know, uh, Gabriella Molina. She was on uh, oh, very good. quite a while ago. But, yeah, she, she talked about the soul. Uh, and, and one sort of, like, theological slash philosophical dilemma that, w- that we discussed was um, if there is something immaterial about the soul and if there is an afterlife. So, again, these are both, you know, ifs that not everyone may agree with. But, um, you know, if these things are true then sort of what would that look like? Like, because people just have such different experiences, right? And presumably when you die, you know, you, um, that immaterial part of you somehow has to preserve, you know, there has to be some continuity between what it was during your life and then what it is afterwards. And so what happens to things like your personality and your memories and even things like the language that you speak, um, your emotions, your, your preferences? I mean, what does... I mean, I know it's a massively uh, yeah. unfair question to ask you what the afterlife is like, because, uh, you know, who can know that? But do you have any, like, you know, as since you are a, a religious person, do you have any sort of intuitions or thoughts about what the immaterial soul um, preserves from this life to the next? Yeah, gosh, I thought we were doing philosophy, not theology. This is beyond my pay grade. Uh <laughs> I'll, I'll increase your honorarium by 200% from zero to, to zero. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Oh, oh, much appreciated. That, yeah, I think that's a huge question. And I think, um, I do think this is where, where philosophy starts to fray. I think there's things philosophy can say about um, the afterlife, but I think it, it uh, can do so only with great temerity. And theology, to be honest, as well. So we do have some revelation in Scripture about the afterlife. Jesus will say things like, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, um, presumably referring to hell. There's uh, references that some think are to purgatory. 
um, in Corinthians and in Revelation. Um, in Revelation, it talks about those who are unclean shall not enter the presence of God, but presumably they're dead. So it sounds like there's this other place. But I think in terms of like, what will our psychological state be? It's a lot of the kind of answers that we can gesture at there are going to be speculative. So Aquinas gives this a go famously, maybe not very successfully though. And he's basically like, yeah, there's this weird in-between period. So Christians also believe in the resurrection of the body at the end of time. So before that, but after death, you're kind of just like an Aristotelian intellect floating around and you have all the memories of things that you had during your life, but you can have no new experiences because humans only get to know things through uh, their bodies, through their five senses. He's basically an empiricist of sorts in that respect. And so without a body, you're stuck. You're kind of like stuck in your mind with just whatever you had experienced on earth. Um, So I think that's a possibility with the resurrection of the body, which is right at the end of the creed. um, And so that's a core Christian belief at the end of the Nicene Creed. There is this real possibility that we then can can learn things anew again. Because if we learn through our bodies, they're like this giant organ that exposes us to the world. Then with a new body in the new heaven and the new earth, we'll be able to do that again. So I think short term, things aren't looking great. But long term, uh, God willing, things things could be pretty awesome once we have our, our glorified bodies. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's speculative, so I, I don't, it's I don't all expect it. Yeah, I don't I don't expect it to be, you know, um, definitive or for anything. Um, but yeah, no, it's always it's always interesting to hear what what people have to say. Um, you know, I think like some, you know, I, I know a lot of religious people and, and sometimes people are like a little afraid to to speculate about things that they don't know about. Um, but personally, I think like, you know, if we don't know them, as long as you're not saying like, this is true, you must believe it. It's the, it's the, you know, it's, it's the right thing just because I thought it up. And as long as you're just saying like, Hey, it's a thought, you know, I don't really see what's wrong with that. In fact, I think it's good. I think people should think about them. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, I struggle with this whole like imagining heaven thing because I'm just not very good at imagining things in general, but do you have any sort of like thoughts about like what heaven would be like, um, how, how, how it would be experienced. So I guess just less technically more just like in your imagination, have you, do you have any, any thoughts on that? I'd be curious. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was like little, I, um, you know, thought it was just like, oh, I'm sure many kids think this when you hear as a child, like, oh, there's like a heaven and you think it's just going to be like all the fun things that you get to do. Like, there's just like, uh, it's like an amusement park where you just go and have fun all day. Um, endless cotton candy. Yeah, exactly. It's up in the clouds, you know, it's always nice weather. Everyone's nice. You get to like eat your favorite foods all the time and, you know, watch a movie every day and and do all that. And, you know, in a childlike way, that's maybe a, a pious thought to, to have because you're just like, OK, it's just like doing doing what you want to do. Um, I don't know. I, I'm very like interested in this idea of the beatific vision um which is mm-hmm. you know i mean that's that's like a christian idea right um but you know like there's a scene in in dante's divine comedy where dante sort of gets a glimpse of that right and and um you know he, he's he's just sort of on this on this journey uh but he sort of gets this glimpse of of the beatific vision so what is the beatific vision it is just i guess pure um just beholding god directly right um and and uh, in a way that we just cannot understand uh, on this earth, and that to me is like really really um, 
I think stuck with me because mm-hmm. you know um, I think there's a part of me that that didn't like the idea of focusing too much on just things that feel nice to you I mean like we know our preferences about things are are often very messed up right like we, we like things that aren't good for us all the time and so the idea that you know an eternal reward is going to just be you doing things that you like um, yeah that just felt sort of phony like what like you know i like lots of things that are bad so yeah you know yeah. what <laughs> take um, that freedom from me please in fact so in fact there's this there's a whole like there's a whole view of of hell right so if you've seen this movie uh the, it was actually in the twilight zone there's this there's this episode in the twilight zone where they think you know it's classic um, well, it's kind of like the good place or something, but they, they, everyone's, you know, everyone's d- dead. Um, and they think that they're in heaven because they can just do whatever they want. So, like, this bank robber goes there and he can just, like, rob banks. The, he never gets killed. Like, the, the police try to catch him, but they're super clumsy. And, uh, you know, he can just rob his, a bank every day and take as much money as he wants. Everyone just lets him. And then, so basically, he just does whatever he wants. And he's, like, he thinks it's heaven at first. But then at the end of the, you know, you know, it's a twilight zone. So you have that moment where you kind of like things get spooky. And then he realizes that actually it's the other place. Um, oh, yeah. Precisely because he can do whatever he wants. Right. Right. Um, so again, so instead of thinking of hell as like, oh, it's just like you're being tortured in fire and brimstone constantly. It's like maybe think of that as like where you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, which gets gets old really quickly. <laughs> Um, yeah. And then think of the beatific vision as something that we cannot really comprehend right now. Um, but it's a vision of goodness and beauty. Yeah. Um, that's also communal in some sense that you're sharing in a vision of goodness and beauty with with other. Other people. Um, yeah. Again, you know, I, I, I feel like I don't know much, much more than that. Um, yeah. Sorry. Do you have any? What were you going to say? Well, you know, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good example. I, I think in some, in some sense, it goes full circle to our the whole talk about free will, because there are different kinds of freedom. And you, there's different ways of articulating this. But I, the earliest example of this distinction that I could find was in Isocrates. So he's a kind of Greek rhetorician from the classical period. And he says, there's two kinds of freedoms. There's a freedom to do whatever you want. And there's a freedom for excellence, essentially. So there's a freedom to, like, choose the best thing. And freedom to do whatever you want, like, that's great when you're, like, eight years old. And the limits of what you can do are, like, not that expansive. And, like, usually um, many of the things that you desire to do, you can actually accomplish. But freedom to, like, do whatever you want actually can become quite stifling. And, as you were saying, uh, misguided when your, like, initial inclinations aren't good. So I've thought a lot about this in terms of just like how freedom can actually be a certain kind of freedom. I think this freedom to do whatever you want can actually be like really oppressive. I remember feeling this by like the third summer of undergraduate and like having to make summer plans and like make these decisions. It was just like exhausting. It's like I felt like I just did this. I'm in the middle of an academic term. I have to like think of a really good use of time for three months and like apply to all these things and convince people that it's like the, my favorite thing in the world that I want to do. And that's just one example, but I think that the kind of oppressiveness of freedom to do whatever you want is really real. It's like, actually, it would be really nice just to know exactly what I ought to do and then just like do that. Like be told, this is exactly what you ought to do. Having to make decisions all the time is like uh, exhausting. Maybe that's yeah. just me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so one thing that, 
you know, this makes me think of, right? Because we have these, like, we have these powerful analogies in the real world that we're using to talk about this eschatological concept. Eschatological, not scatological. um, (laughs) Important. To to clarify. Important distinction. Huge difference in meaning uh, with one phoneme. Uh, (laughs) But, um, yeah, which, like, I don't know, maybe this is like makes me slightly, you know, out there in terms of like what what I should say as a, you know, as a Catholic or, you know, but like, I actually think that there's a perfectly coherent view of, of heaven and hell that actually doesn't even depend on there being an afterlife, like, there could literally be no afterlife. And it would still make sense to like talk about heaven and hell because the analogies to the real world are so powerful and true. Right. So, you know, we talked about addiction earlier, right? Like, that seems to me like a very good definition of hell, right? Because it's like, you know, like what we, we talked about. It's not like one sin is going to like get you there, right? Like if you mess, everyone messes up all the time and it's not usually like doesn't send you on like a huge bad path. But if you keep repeating a bad action over and over again and you build a habit and you destroy your ability to actually make good choices over time, you can find yourself in what by any accounts feels like a hell on earth, right? Where if you're, let's say you're, you know, homeless on the streets, addicted to drugs, and, you know, can't do anything to change your life. I mean, that is, like, as close as you might get to, like, you know, understanding what hell is. Or, like, I don't know, if you, um, yeah, like, if you do something really bad, like, you you murder someone, you know, and then you're haunted by that guilt for the rest of your life. And every day you're thinking, what if I had acted differently? What if I had, you know, built up enough virtue that in that moment I was able to make the right decision and not kill someone? then you'll be constantly asking yourself that. And that is a, you know, again, that's its own punishment, right? Like, even if there were no hell after death, that's still its own punishment. And you can say the same with with heaven, right? Where it's like, um, you know, by by building virtue in the way that we were talking about earlier and focusing on the habits rather than just specific actions, you can actually build uh, not a utopia. Like, I don't really believe there are actual utopias on on Earth. You know, that's why it's called utopia. It means nowhere. But, um, you know, you can approximate it, right? So, I mean, all this, a lot of morality, you know, when people, I like it when people talk about human flourishing and and what it actually means to thrive as a human being and not as just an individual, not as an individual human being, but as a community, as a functioning society and the steps that we can take to actually build that. And, you know, it will always, life will always be a mix of the two. We'll have bits of heaven and bits of hell, you know, but it's like, you can, by your choices and by the, the society that you create with those around you, you can approximate a type of heaven in which people help each other, in which people build things rather than destroy, in which people care for others instead of spiting them. You know what I mean? And you can sort of like um, uh, approximate that, right? And and I, I do think that this gets at a very communal aspect. So I think so many, you know, often very many religious people look at um, heaven and hell and, you know, all this is just sort of like this private thing between them and God. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. here's my scorecard. And actually, yeah. I think that's like sort of deeply wrong in, in, in many ways. I think yeah. like it's sort of like a where we go one, you know, we sort of go together type of type of thing where uh, I didn't mean to use the QAnon uh, hashtag. That's like something they say. Never mind. Um, but it's like, <laughs> you know, it's sort of this like corporate and uh, like together as a group. You know, you can either lead yourselves astray or not. It's sort of like we're talking about OA, outdoor action. We both, you know, were leaders and led. Brought the freshmen out into the woods for a week. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like at the end, like each person on the team is going to get their own separate scorecard. It's like you either had a successful trip together or you didn't didn't. together. 
Yeah, and it's like you you may have devolved into a type of hell where you guys all hated each other and you were, you know, not co- not collaborating, you were fighting over food, you weren't sharing the the weight uh when you and you know, uh everyone got stuck carrying uncomfortable things that didn't fit their packs and all that, you know. You you may have that type of experience or you may experience the type of people the type did the of, food yeah. challenge and vomited and <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um but or you may experience the the opposite and sort of build a, um, you know, a, a beautiful mini society, you know, yeah. in that group. So so I do think that there is like there's responsibility for the other. Uh, and, you know, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm still like thinking about these things. Um, you know, there's an author, David Bentley Hart, who actually he used some of these ideas to actually argue that there can't be an eternal hell. So, he, I mean, he's an orthodox yeah. Eastern Orthodox Christian himself. Universal. He, he's argued that basically, yeah, there, there cannot be a universal hell. Sorry, an, an eternal hell. Because um, since we're all in this together, so to speak, like it, no, no one can experience bliss knowing that members of their own human race are suffering in eternal torment. So it's sort of like together we do have to like, you know, morality matters, but like we, we all share sort of a common destiny is, is sort of. Um, one way of looking at it. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, 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 at least I read that book and it was very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. You're to the first point that you made before getting on, I, I have some things to say on, on the kind of communal aspect, which is I, I think fascinating and actually quite mystical, but there's the idea of like heaven and hell approaching that approximating that now on the one hand, we're always going to inevitably fail. This is why communism doesn't work. This is why capitalism doesn't work. This is why all of our kind of human systems do not succeed is because we're fallen creatures on the Christian worldview. And so there's there's in a sense in which we can really try to approximate. We can really try to improve. In fact, we have a prerogative to, but we will never ever succeed in like making the new Jerusalem be here uh, given our kind of inherent original sin and therefore fallenness. That's like the kind of, tragic side of it but i think that you're absolutely right that there's like a sense in which we have to we have to move towards these now and in fact heaven and hell might not look so different from where we are now you gave that uh, the example you brought up dante earlier and i i just remember how in reading the inferno um well first time i read it was back in that hume sequence it's his punishments are so creative because they're so exactly like what the sin is so there's the there's the circle with the hoarders and the spendthrifts and the hoarders have to spend eternity receiving these heavy stones. They're just like handed these giant stones that they have to deal with because they're hoarders. So they're just like constantly taking in stuff. And the spendthrifts, on the other hand, are constantly lifting and handing over these giant stones. And they're like pushing them around the circle towards the other group. And the other group has to like take them in. And it's that process for eternity. So that, that kind of like sense in which the afterlife is not going to be all that different from how we've made ourselves to be in this life. I think is is really well taken and i think the same could apply for heaven where in reality if you learn how to have peace with your brethren and joy and love of god and worship in this life well hopefully not a whole lot will have to change in the next life if you're if you're saved and all that uh on the political thing quoting someone who you may know uh she says salvation is a group sport i think it's uh i think it's an apt analogy um and and yeah, just sort of very much agree with your take there that kind of in line with the, the Christian idea of the body of Christ, which is a very mystical thing. We're all stones of this temple. It Yeah, it's not an individual enterprise. And I think um, 
actually understanding the importance of the body and like we talked about earlier the resurrection of the body is an important step towards really realizing the kind of corporate uh nature of salvation and nature of how things are going to be in the afterlife one way or the other because i think that the kind of thinking that leads to it's just between me and god stems from i would say a kind of cartesian view of the person where we're all just like these little ghosts floating around but if we're little ghosts we can't communicate with each other because like we've talked about philosophically your phenomenal experience is totally inaccessible to me and mine to you and so if we don't have these bodies which are like the means by which we we exchange information and contact with each other in the external world not to mention language is through the body uh we would seriously be our islands every everyone would be an island um this is this is a kind of idea that i've been thinking about because i've been reading c.s lewis's problem of pain and he has this he has that whole point basically he draws it out quite beautifully much more articulately than i just did but that the bodies are the means of human communication without the body humans are totally sealed off from each other so i think without drawing out all the implications that can be drawn out there i just think that the body is an important step towards that kind of corporate communal um communal uh element of humanity that will carry over into the afterlife Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are definitely like tough to tough to talk about. And you know, frankly, I don't always get the chance to talk about things like this in in many you know contexts. I guess I, I guess academically, sometimes I feel like oh, it's frowned upon to like have these speculative conversations where you bring in personal religious beliefs and all that. But you know, I mean, I'm glad we're able to like you know discuss these things. And I think you know, I genuinely think that you don't have to be religious to find these questions interesting. I mean. I think everyone wonders, right? Like, is there something after death? And, you know, even if you don't espouse a Christian worldview or, you know, any other particularly religious worldview, um, even if you're firmly convinced that once you die, that's it, there's nothing. Um, you know, as I said, right, there are, there are ramifications to these ways of thinking about it, even for this life, right? I mean, like, it can inform, like, even if, even if these are just metaphors, they can inform the way we live in our morality now. Oh, um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. Yeah. And on a more on a more basic level, I think you and I both having experienced education on both sides of the pond, uh, metaphorically, there is a tendency, I think, in the places where we currently are in the kind of Oxbridge system, there's a real openness to these kind of conversations. I think, unfortunately, it's been a little bit um, mitigated in our current academic year for obvious reasons. But what I, I studied abroad uh, here at Oxford as well. And during that time, there, there really is this kind of like laid back pub culture, intellectual discussion um, sort of ethos that allows for what I think essentially uh, we've been able to do today, which is like bringing ideas down from the page, down from the written book, but just sort of like, how, how do these affect our lives? How do we think that they should change the way that we, we, we think about our own future paths? And that's ultimately like ultimately the most important side of, of education, I think. And I think something that um, the U.S. Uh, affinity for testing and full class schedules can sometimes make more difficult. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely a fair point. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have way less class time obligations here in Cambridge than I ever did in Princeton. I'd like to say I've used all my extra free time to, to read lots of things and engage with the ideas. I'm not sure that's 
always been true. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, I, I totally appreciate what you mean about like the importance of, of taking time to just talk informally about things outside of outside of formal class context. Yeah. Um, if I if I could ask you one thing before I'll, I'll let you you know get on to your your other other appointments. Um, one thing I've I haven't been consistent about asking this to my guests, but I would like to um, start asking more consistently is Do you have any recommended either books, films, or or things that um, I can look into? Not not they don't have to be like technical or, or super academic, but something that you think um, would be a um, good introduction to some of the ideas that that have shaped you that have impacted your your outlook. Okay. Yeah. I'll take probably five seconds to think about that one because there's a a lot of different directions I could go. But I think fiction, I'll just start here. I mentioned Jane Austen. For reasons that I'll let you figure out for yourself, I think persuasion is the one that's most relevant to modernity, as it were, and can speak to us most closely. So I'd really recommend persuasion out of Jane Austen's six uh, full-length published novels. Um, one nonfiction, and I'll try to end with philosophy, but one nonfiction, um, this book called Deep Work, which you may have heard of. It's by this guy, Cal Newport. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Excellent practical advice on, it's how to be a student, but it's he uses the term intellectual worker. So it's how to just do any kind of work in modernity well, while avoiding the pitfalls of too much email and things like that. So really, really. Yeah, I listened. I listened to a podcast with Cal Newport, and yeah, very. I like him a lot. I mean, just quick pause on that. Do you think it's possible to like work a full eight hour intellectual work day? Like, if you're doing, if you're an academic, like, can you actually use your brain and do solid research work for eight hours? No. In one. Day? I think I think we max out around four or five, but I think those four or five have to be totally free of distraction which is so so rare and so difficult for us to do these days okay but yeah no i I agree yeah no i think i think 40 hours of academic work is is that's a myth i mean maybe 40 hours of work because you're doing like you're filling out some application forms you're responding to your professor you have some meetings whatever that's fine that counts towards the work but like actual reading and research yeah it's it that kind of depth requires a, an engagement that uh, can't be spread thin. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and then... And then final one. final one is philosophy on the terms, on stuff that we've been talking about. And this is going to be a little bit erudite, but I would recommend De Fato by Cicero on fate. And it really deals with tons of the questions about determinism, about free will that we've been talking about. And the great thing about it is it's a kind of anthology because he recounts the Stoics say this, the Aristotelians say this, the Epicureans say this. He comes a little bit after all the Greeks, and so he really can just recount all of the ancient positions. He's a Roman. He's writing a little bit later. Um, so that's what I'd recommend philosophically, de fato. Cool. Very nice. All right. Well, well, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. I, I appreciate your time. I'll let you get on to other things, but um, it was great having you on, and I will keep thinking about these ideas and would love to have another chat at some point. Thank you, Thomas. It was a joy.